0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. We are going to be studying one of Jesus' more famous miracles today. A miracle that you, I'm sure, no doubt have studied when you were little, if you went to Sunday school. This is Jesus' healing of the paralytic and the guy who needed a major roof repair job when Jesus was done. Now, while you're turning, I'm just going to begin by asking you a a small question just to get us sort of an on-ramp into this topic. And here's the question I have for you. What is the greatest benefit that Christianity brings to the world? What is the greatest benefit that Christianity brings to the world? Some people think that the greatest benefit the Christian faith has brought to the world is morality. Because it's true that when Christianity spreads in a culture, Christians usually are good people. They are, they are moral people. And there's numerous stories of Societies that were really far from God, that were very evil, who were very transformed by the Christian faith to become a more moral culture. Other people think that the greatest, one of the great benefits the Christian faith brings is love. Because, you know, Christians are all about love. We love one another. We even love our enemies. And they say the Christian faith has certainly made the world a more loving place to be. that's true. Other people would say that the greatest benefit the Christian faith brings to the world is social care. You realize uh, most hospitals didn't actually begin as works of the government. They began as works from a church. That's why so many hospitals, they have like St. Jude's or St. Mary's, because it was all social care as a response to the church. You've heard Salvation Army, that's social care for the poor. Well, it's true that the Christian faith brings morality to culture, and it does bring love between people, and it's also true it does bring social care. The honest truth is that while those things are good things of the Christian faith, they're not the greatest thing of the Christian faith. The greatest thing that the Christian faith offers to the world is forgiveness, forgiveness, The Bible tells us that we are desperately in need of forgiveness, whether you realize it or not. The Bible says we are sinners by nature and by choice. That is the reason it is so easy for us to lie. It's very easy for us to cheat. It's very easy for us to steal. And those of you with young children, what is the very first word your child learns to say? No, I'm not going to listen to you. And that attitude of, I'm not going to listen to you, may start with mom and dad, but it just continues throughout the rest of our life to our heavenly Father. And we go our own way and we do our own thing. We are deeply in rebellion against God. And even if we try to say no to sin, we're so addicted to it, we go right back and do it all over again. The Bible says that God is just. And because of our sin, we each deserve an eternity in the lake of fire. The lake of fire, where the Bible says, is originally prepared for the devil and his angels, but it is where we also deserve to be for our sin and our rebellion. But here's the good news. God isn't just just, but God is incredibly loving and incredibly kind. And he also provided a way for us to escape the justice that we each deserve that way of escape is jesus christ he sent his own son who died in our place he died for our sins he offers us forgiveness and by the way that is what we are in so desperate need of to be forgiven and to be made right with god now, let me show you some verses, by the way, that just uh, talk about this. I put those in the top of your outline for you. For instance, Acts 13, 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. There's the good news right there. Or also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses is just another word for sins. According to the riches of his grace. This is not just a New Testament thing, but you can flip to the Old Testament and you find God talking about offering us forgiveness and he's pointing forward to what Jesus would ultimately do. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38, verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Don't you love that picture? Cast all my sins behind my back, behind your back. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Our God is a great God who is just, but he also is incredibly forgiving, ultimately through Jesus Christ. In fact, you could almost say that when we forgive others completely and fully and totally, that's when we're most like God. When we refuse to forgive others and we hold a grudge, we won't make a relationship right, that's when we're at least like God. Now, the story we're going to look at this morning about Jesus here is actually a story of forgiveness. It's a story about the greatness and truth of God's forgiveness for us through Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, make sure you have them open to Mark chapter 2. And I'd like you to stand out of reverence for the word of God as I read Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. And he returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never, we never saw anything like this. That ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. Now, earlier in our study of this Gospel of Mark, we learned that Mark's purpose in the first half of this Gospel is to prove to us that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the rightful King of our lives. And Mark has been doing this um, by showing us the level and extent of Jesus' authority. Consistently, again and again, each one of these stories tells us about the greatness of Jesus' authority. For instance, when we first began in the book, we learned that uh, Jesus had authority in his teaching. He didn't teach like the scribes, it said, but he taught with authority. And then we got on to not just the authority of his teaching, but the authority of his very words, Right after that, we saw that Jesus, with the authority of his mere word, cast a demon out of a man who was in the synagogue that day. We moved from casting a demon out of a man by the authority of his word to healing those who were sick by the authority of his word. First, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. We remember she was sick with a high fever, most likely from an infection, and he took her by the hand, and as he lifted her up, he lifted the fever out now for some people who are reading mark's gospel this healing of a a lady with a high fever isn't really that impressive so mark continues on that theme of healing those who are sick and the story that he told us last week was of healing a man who was a leper leprosy is a very serious illness a bodily deforming illness Leprosy, a person is covered with these tumors and their skin goes from being smooth to hard and scaly and their fingers rot off, their toes rot off, their ears rot off, their nose rots off, their teeth falls out of their face. It's a disgusting and debilitating disease. And Luke tells us that this particular leper that Jesus healed was covered from head to foot with leprous tumors. Yet, at just a mere word, Jesus said, I will be clean. And instantly and completely, all of the tumors were eradicated. His scaly skin was transformed to smooth skin. Fingers and toes that had rotted off were instantly restored. Ears and nose that were gone were completely put back in place. It was a miracle, the likes of which nobody had ever seen or conceived of before. It was a miracle on the order of creation itself from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So Mark has been telling us the authority of Jesus' words to heal are great and incredible. Now, this morning we see that Jesus' words don't just have authority to heal, but they have authority even to forgive sin sort of like uh, Mark is portraying Jesus like a teenager with a stereo system. You know how teenagers do that when they get a new stereo? They play it at like, at like one or two loudness for a while, and then they get bored with that, and they turn it up to three or four, and then it's up to five or six, and finally they want it on full volume. Well, that's sort of what we're finding about the authority of Jesus' words. Mark is showing us it's greater and greater and greater than we ever imagined. Now, as we study through this text that we just read, let me tell you how we're going to break it apart. Uh, We're going to look at it under five different headings. I'm just going to look at it essentially through the different uh, people that are in the crowd. The first thing we're going to look at is the curious crowd that's around Jesus. Then we're going to look at the believing paralytic that comes to Jesus. Next, we're going to look at the forgiving Jesus. Then we're going to look at the hostile leaders who are against Jesus, and finally, the astonished crowd that responds to Jesus. So let's go ahead and work our way through the text, beginning with the curious crowd in the first two verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door and he was preaching the word to them. The first thing he says here is when he returned to Capernaum. So obviously he was gone from Capernaum for a while. Um, we know that the first time he came to Capernaum, we studied that in the first chapter, he wasn't actually there very long at all. He arrived, he, he taught on the Sabbath day, kicked a demon out of a guy in, in, in the synagogue, then he ended up healing Peter's mother-in-law. Then he ended up healing a whole bunch of people that night, really busy, packed Sabbath day. But the next morning, we saw that he went off for a quiet time and did some prayer time with his heavenly father. And his heavenly father impressed on him that he was not to stay in Capernaum, he was to move on from Capernaum and to go to the other villages surrounding Capernaum and to share the good news of the kingdom of God with them too. Now we know that Josephus has told us, he was an ancient Jewish historian, that there are 240 other villages and towns around the Sea of Galilee. So he's on his way, or he had been on his way, to go ahead and visit them. In fact, this is where we left off in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, when Jesus said this, he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Now, how long was he gone? We saw here, it says, after many days, he returned. Incidentally, the uh, the Greek on this, when it says many days, is rather ambiguous. It doesn't tell us the exact length of time. It could be he was gone to these other towns for weeks. It could be he was gone to these other towns for months. I'm going to lean that he was actually gone for several months. And the reason is his ministry in the area of Galilee lasts for about a year and a half. And so it's most likely he was out there for a while. He had a lot of ground to cover. But last week we learned why he returned at this point. If you were with us, you learned when he healed the leper, which is this incredible miracle and healing, he gave the leper very strong and strict instructions. He said, Do not tell anyone around here what I have done for you, but you are to go to the priest in Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice for your cleansing, so that they may know know, what I have done for you. Jesus is very strict and direct in this. But this leper was a very ungrateful leper, a very disobedient leper. As far as we know, he never went the 100 miles to Jerusalem. And instead of going to Jerusalem, he did exactly what Jesus told him not to do. He told everybody what Jesus did for him. And Jesus' popularity totally skyrocketed. After that, we learned that Jesus was not able to even go into these little towns and villages without being mobbed, without being crushed because his popularity was so incredibly high. Mark chapter 1, verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. That's speaking about the leper. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. At this point, Jesus really can't continue his ministry around Galilee. He's not making any progress. Can't get any of the towns without getting mobbed. So he figures maybe things have cooled down a bit back at Capernaum. So he goes back to Capernaum. And he actually doesn't go into Capernaum with a lot of fanfare. I personally think this is what you call stealth Jesus. You know, he goes into Capernaum, not trying not to let people know that he is there. Very low profile Jesus. But it doesn't work. Because eventually, what happens in every small town? News travels, doesn't it? News gets out. That's why it says it was reported that he was at home. Eventually, people started talking about, hey, guess what? Remember Jesus who healed all those people? Cast that demon out. He's back. And the popularity begins to rise. Now, it says here that he was at home. This is an interesting question. Apparently... Jesus had a home in Capernaum. Did he own his own home? Quite possibly. Maybe he did. I'm going to tell you what some of those who are the Bible scholars think. They believe this is actually Peter or Jesus' returned to Peter's home. And Peter's home was Jesus' home when he was in Capernaum. We learned this uh, a few weeks ago. Peter uh, was a fisherman. He was not a poor man, though. He was a businessman. We learned, actually, Peter was a rather wealthy man by the standards of the day. Peter's house, we know from archaeological digs in Capernaum, was actually a large house. It was a pretty big house. It was, should I call it, not a house, I should maybe call it a homestead you know it's got that kind of ring to it because and Peter's into hospitality all the way. I mean, he has his mother-in-law living with him. And if he's having his mother-in-law, you know he's into hospitality. And he must have a really big house. But not only that, he has his brother Andrew, you know, and apparently he's having Jesus stay with them as stay with him as well. Well, what we know after this is that a lot of people came to see Jesus. And it says this, and so many gathered together, so that there was no more room even at the door. If you're staying in Peter's house, it's a big house, but it is not a big enough house. He has way too many visitors once he realize they realize he's back in town. You want to picture this? Have you ever seen sardines in a can? Well, this is what it looks like. This is human beings in Peter's house packed in like sardines in a can. The Capernaum fire marshal is not happy with this. This is way overcrowded. I mean, this is worse than trying to find a seat at the family diner on Saturday morning. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, everybody is there. They have come to see Jesus. They want to hear him teach. Now, before we get too far, though, I want to talk about this crowd, this crowd that has come to gather to hear Jesus. We would start by thinking, well, if you have a crowd, it must be a good thing because you have a lot of people there to hear Jesus. But that's not really the way that Mark pictures crowds in his gospel. Crowds are actually not a good thing. They're actually a a sort of a bad thing thing in his gospel. Because the crowds are more interested in seeing what Jesus does and being entertained by him than actually responding to his words and changing their lives. The best way to picture crowds is sort of like um, concert junkies in in the gospel of mark you know they're there to see the concert they're there to be entertained they're not there to respond and to change their life it's like this is what we're doing for entertainment this evening we're going to go watch jesus and see if he does some miracles it's really pretty cool we can talk about it with our friends so this is the way the crowds are they're yuppies and groupies Now this particular miracle that Jesus does with this paralytic is not just told to us in the Gospel of Mark, it's actually also told to us in the Gospel of Matthew and as well the Gospel of Luke. And as we've been going through these in the Gospel arc, sometimes we go to Matthew and Luke to get more information that maybe Mark hasn't provided, and we can do that. And what we find is there's actually some key people in this crowd that are listening to Jesus that Luke Tells us about. Let me read for you Luke chapter 5, verse 17. And on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So what we have is Pharisees and teachers of the law who have come from everywhere to go check Jesus out. Let me tell you about the Pharisees. Pharisees is a a Jewish religious sect. It's the strictest Jewish religious sect. Literally, they mean separate. These are the fundamentalists. These are the legalists. These are the guys who make sure that they obey every single law that is found in the Old Testament to a T. And they also, historically we know, have added a bunch of other things to the law, a bunch of other lists, and a bunch of other taboos that they feel they have to do even beyond the law. So it's legalism, 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 lists, 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 and they've actually begun to shift how some people are saved because... Even in the Old Testament, people were always saved by faith. But these guys have gotten to the point where they say, well, it's not really about faith. It's about keeping the laws and following the lists. So they've actually shifted these things. They're very influential at this time in history. There's about 6,000 of them in existence. They've been around for about 400 years. They had their origin around about the time of Ezra. And where they are in the crowd, this is what they're doing. They are there to fact check Jesus. They're looking for something he is doing wrong. They're there to be critical and to uh, find something they can say against him. They're not there to listen, to repent, and to be changed. It's a tough crowd. Not only were there Pharisees in the crowd, but there were teachers of the law in the crowd. Now, if the Pharisees are like a uh, sort of a super strict denomination, you can think of the teachers of the law like the seminary and Bible school professors of the day. These are the D.A. Carsons, the N.T. Wrights, the... Um, what do they call it? Eugene Petersons of the day. They're also there to fact-check Jesus, to check him out and see how they can catch him in doing or saying something wrong. It's like, Jesus has the White House press pool. You know what I'm saying? Let's see if we can give him tough questions. let's see if we can mess him up. Let's see if we can catch him and discredit him. That's what they are there for. He is a very tough crowd. And in this tough crowd that is packed like sardines into the house to hear him teach and be critical of him comes the paralytic, which is the believing paralytic. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, the Bible tells us that this is not the only healing of a paralytic that Jesus has. He has healed many paralytics. We learned that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. But this is uh, the only detailed healing of a paralytic we have in the Gospel of Mark. Now, here's what's interesting. We know that Jesus heals people with just a touch or just a word. He's been doing literally hundreds of these thousands of these. He's back in Capernaum where the word is a buzz about Jesus, the one who has healed Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus, the one who has healed people all night long on that first Sabbath. And this paralytic hears about this. The paralytic's friends hear about this. They go to bring this guy to Jesus. You know, they're all going. They get to Jesus. He's right there. But nobody gives up their seats. Nobody will move. Nobody will make a way because we are going to be here listening to Jesus. We're going to be here kidding. we're going to catch Jesus, find some other time. Interestingly, when you look at this in Luke, Luke tells us that they repeatedly tried to get in the door. The way he phrases it in Luke chapter 5, 18 through 19. And behold, some of the men were bringing, on, were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in. It's continual. And lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in. Why? The crowd. Because of the crowd. Now, as I was studying this this week, I actually found myself getting a little angry at this crowd. Do you feel any anger at this crowd? The critical crowd? The fact-checking crowd? The crowd that is actually keeping people from Jesus rather than helping bring people to Jesus? And As I started to reflect on this, I started to realize, you know, it's easy for each one of us to be just like this critical crowd, isn't it? It's easy for us to start to be critical people rather than caring people. And the critical people often keep people from Jesus, where it's the caring people who bring people to Jesus. And you know how this works. You get in the car, you're driving home after Sunday, and somebody says, didn't you think it was too hot in there today? Well, didn't you think that the music was too loud? Didn't you think the coffee was too strong? Didn't you think the pastor made a mistake? And the list goes on and on. And what do we end up doing? Keeping people from Jesus instead of bringing people to Jesus. And I say that merely just as a challenge for each one of us. Check our attitudes. Because sometimes if you find yourself consistently being critical you also realize you're also not bringing anyone to Christ. So be a caring person instead of a critical person. Don't be like crowds. Let's continue in the story. Now, these guys who are bringing their paralytic friend, there is absolutely no way they can get in. They're frustrated, but they're persistent folks. They decide that, you know, what we're going to do is we're gonna go back and do something a little tricky because apparently these guys have watched MacGyver. Because you know MacGyver always finds a way, right? And so they get, you know, think back on their MacGyver episodes. They say, what we can do is we can go up to the roof. Now, in the, in the houses in the ancient world had a flat roof on them. The staircases to the outside roofs were always, or the roofs were on the outside of the houses so they wouldn't have to go through the crowd. So they went up on the roof They did their geometry. They knew Jesus was about this far from the door. They mapped it out on the roof. They said, if we go right down there, we'll be right above Jesus. Now, let me tell you how the roofs in the ancient world worked. They weren't just flat roofs, but let me show you how they were constructed. Jeremy, go ahead and throw me a a picture up there. Typically, what they used is uh, logs like this that spanned across the walls Then what they did is they, at a perpendicular angle, they put down saplings. Oftentimes they put down different grasses to make it a little denser. And then what they did is they went and took mud, usually a clay is what they wanted, and they spread this clay on top. They had something called a roof roller that they would roll back and forth to try and get this flat roof flat with the clay the more expensive houses in the day. What they also did is they took tiles that had been fired and they put those tiles into the clay so it sort of looked like your tiled bathroom floor. Now, interestingly, we know this is a more expensive house that they are in. Once again, Peter is, you know, the wealthy business guy. He has tiles on the uh, roof of his house. And how do we know that? Go back to Luke. Luke tells us these things. In Luke 5.19, but finding no way to get him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles. Now, I want you to picture how this unfolds, because this is going to be really cool. I, incidentally, know what it's like to be a public speaker. And it's because I speak. And Jesus is doing his speaking and teaching to this hostile, packed crowd. And I can tell you, when there's this distraction, like when somebody has a child that's crying, I can watch every single eye from here. And when that child is crying, I can tell you where every single eye goes. Watches the child, you know. And I know at that point, whatever I'm saying, I might as well not even be talking because nobody is listening at all. You're all thinking about the child. And every once in a while one of you goes and the mother's like, ah. You know how that goes. Well, if you think a child is distracting, imagine if you are teaching and somebody is trying to drill through the roof over your head. You get the picture? It's like he has tiles up there. I mean, these things don't just pop up. I mean, you've got to pry them up. You've got to then you know, chip through the clay. So you have shovels. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Tom. And Kevin can't be here to do this for me, so he's, he's pinch hitting right there. So what he's doing is he's going through the clay, and, and then they're eventually pulling back these saplings and trees. And you can picture all of this debris just coming through the roof, and nobody can get away from it. Remember, they pack themselves like this, and they're all the religious guys with their white fancy robes looking all prim and proper, and the dirt is just coming down. Clay and dirt falling on their heads, and no one's moving. And this is a big hole. I mean, we're talking, they got to make a four-by-six in the roof until finally they see the heads peering in, and then they put the paralytic in, they've got them on ropes, and now we're at the circus, like the high wire act. You know, you can see the paralytic. He's swinging back and forth over top of the crowd, eventually working his way down to land in front of Jesus. And this is what happens. We see the forgiving Jesus. He lands and then says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is not what this guy expected. I didn't come here to get my sins forgiven. I came here to get myself healed so I can walk uh, again. This is also presenting another problem. This guy apparently didn't seem to ask for forgiveness of sins or even express repentance of sin, but Jesus just looks at him and like, Shh, your sins are forgiven. What is going on? Or maybe this guy did repent of his sin. Maybe this guy did have faith in Jesus. I'm putting a couple pieces together, but remember we read earlier that Jesus was preaching and teaching this group? And that he had gone all around the Sea of Galilee preaching and teaching because that is why he came. Miracles were secondary The primary reason was to share the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know the details of what Jesus said exactly, but the good news of the the kingdom of God is what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Whatever the message Jesus was saying, it had to do with repentance of sin and ultimately trusting in him to be forgiven of your sins and to be made right with God. And what I believe is going on here is this guy, he definitely had faith that Jesus could heal his paralysis. But he also heard Jesus' words that day, and he believed them, that Jesus also could forgive his sin and make his relationship right with God. So when he says, your sins are forgiven, this is because he's repented in his heart. He's believing God's words. Now, remember, this is a very critical crowd. They've been looking to see how they can trap Jesus. And that's exactly what they wanted. That's why Jesus gave it to them. Let's look at the hostile leaders. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Well, the first thing they start thinking in their head is, he's blaspheming. You can't just forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And you know what? They're right. Only God can forgive sins. But this is where it gets interesting. As they are thinking this, Jesus reads their minds. Immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus is reading their mind. Jesus knows what they're thinking, which is something that only God can do. A demon cannot read your mind. Satan cannot read your thoughts angels cannot read your thoughts. Only God can know your thoughts. So here they're like, hey, how could he say you can forgive sins? Because only God can do that. And he's like, oh, let me just tell you what you're thinking, which is something only God can do. Interesting. Let's look what the scriptures say about this. first Samuel sixteen seven but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on his height or the height of his stature because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as a man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Or first Chronicles twenty eight nine, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thoughts. Jeremiah seventeen ten, I the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. To give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your minds. So Jesus claims to be able to forgive this man's sins. He also reads the religious leaders' minds. And then he says this, which easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Arise, take up your bed and walk. Now in one sense it's of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to test that. But in another sense they're equally hard. Only God could instantly heal this paralytic. And only God could forgive his sins. And so Jesus says, "Take up your bed and walk," and he is instantly, completely and totally healed. Now, what Jesus is trying to do, this is what he's driving home, that they would put together the pieces. Only God can read someone's mind. Only God can instantly heal people like this paralytic and the leper. And only God can forgive sins. Jesus is indeed God. But let's look what the crowds do. Do they get it? Let's look at their reaction. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed, glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Wow, this is really cool. But they never put the pieces together as to what this means about Jesus's identity and who he is. They were just entertained by it. Now, I mentioned to you that this, this story is told is in Matthew as well as Luke. And I'd like to just read for you the ending of this same story in Matthew, which shows us this very same thing. When the crowd saw it, they were terrified, and they glorified God, saying, who had, they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The operative word here is men. Who did they think Jesus still was? Just a man when he had given them all the authority and all the evidence they need to realize he is actually God. That gives us our two applications and conclusions, and they are these. Number one, Jesus is more than a man. He's God because he does what only God can do forgive our sins, he can heal people, and he can even read minds. And I say that because you hear so much in the culture today that Jesus is just another religious teacher out there, like Buddhist, like Confucius. No, he's not. The evidence is clear. He is God. The other thing is this. If Jesus' word has the authority to heal sickness, he also has the authority to forgive sin because sin is the source of sickness. Remember where we started. Forgiveness is the greatest need that each one of us has. Nobody ends up in heaven because they've sinned. They end up in heaven because they have forgiven Sin. And we can be forgiven through Jesus Christ at the authority of his word. Now I say this. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what sin you struggle with. I don't know how many times you go back to it and you're so completely disgusted at yourself and just just broken at your sinfulness. I do know this. No matter what you have done, Jesus can completely and totally forgive you and restore your relationship with God. Just as completely and totally people were healed physically, He could also instantly and completely forgive you and heal your relationship with God eternally by the authority of His Word forgiveness is offered to you and to me today completely fully totally and instantly my friends that is incredible good news when you look at jesus don't see jesus like the crowd saw him as just an entertainer see him like the paralytics saw him the one he can trust to not just heal his body but to also forgive his sin and make him in a right relationship with God once again. Let's pray. Jesus, we are amazed by the miracles of healing that we see physically. Uh, We're a leper and many other miracles that you have done, but we're even more amazed at the eternal healing that you offer to us to forgive us of our sin completely, fully and totally by simply turning to you and trusting in you. Repenting of our sin and putting our faith in you is what will heal us. And I pray for anyone here today who is uh, struggling with their sin, who has not found forgiveness for their sin. I pray that they would turn to you today and be forgiven and restored. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.